I'd like to direct your attention this morning to the 19th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 19, this morning we're going to be focusing on verse 16, the second half of verse 16 through verse 30. This is the word of God, and the word of God is true, and the word of God is life. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the original Greek version of the Gospel of John, the apostle uses 15,635 Greek words in order to tell us about the life ministry, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he only uses three of those 15,635 words. He only uses three of them to describe the most important event in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, these three Greek words that he uses in the original text describe the most important event in a very real sense of the word in the entire history of the universe. I'm going to read those words to you. 
And I know, I was already reminded after the first service, it's actually four words, but it's four words in English to translate the three words in Greek. And here they are. There they crucified him. That's John's description of the most important event in the history of the universe. There they crucified him. We know from the whole Gospel of John, from chapter 1, we know that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who exists eternally before creation, that he actually is the creator, and that he took upon human flesh and dwelt among us, fully God and fully man. But why? Why did the eternal Son of God do this? Well, John tells us, because Jesus revealed it to his disciples the last time he entered into Jerusalem. He said to his disciples, For this purpose I have come to this hour, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The purpose of Jesus coming to earth and living among us was so that he could die. He was born in order to die. That was his mission. So, if that was his purpose, and his death on the cross is the most important event in the history of the universe, why does John tell us so little about it? Why does he leave out all the details? I mean, we live here in the 21st century. We're used to graphic violence on TV and in the movies. We can handle it. Why doesn't he describe even what the cross looked like? I mean, commentators debate about whether it was a cross like you see in the pictures or whether it was an X shape or a T shape. Nobody really knows because the gospel writers don't tell us. What did the cross look like? How did they position his body on the cross? What did it look like and sound like when the nails were driven into his hands and into his feet? What did it look like as his body writhed in agony on the cross as the blood flowed out of his body and he couldn't breathe and he dies of asphyxiation and heart failure? What did it look like? We want the details. And John says they crucified him. Matter of fact, what was striking to me as I dug into this text this week is that While the perfect Son of God, who is also a perfect man, is writhing in agony on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, John decides to tell us three little vignettes, three little stories about what's going on around the cross. He tells us about a squabble between Pilate, the Roman governor, and the Jewish chief priests about the sign that was hung on the cross. He tells us about a silly little game that the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross are playing at the foot of the cross to determine who gets his clothes. And then he tells us a story about how the care of Jesus' mother is transferred to one of the disciples. You know, if John were filming a documentary here, wouldn't you want to grab the camera from him and say, you're missing the focus of the greatest event in history here. You're you're focusing on all these trivial things around the cross. Look at the one on the cross. That's what this is all about. It reminds me, though, we just, in our adult Sunday school, we studied through the book of Revelation in the months of 
January and February. And remember how many times in the book of Revelation, God will give you a vision of the throne room in heaven for our comfort. He'll give us just a glimpse, a vision, not a literal picture, but a a vision of what's in heaven to comfort us while we labor here in, in the fallen world. And as you think about those visions, the camera, so to speak, in those visions is not focused on the one on the throne. I mean, if somebody's going to show you the throne of heaven, don't you want to look at the one on the throne and say, what's he look like? What's it like? But in those visions, what you get, typical to the Apostle John, you get, well, here's what the people around the throne are doing. You're like, why? Why is John's avoid telling us about the central focus of the story? Well, I think there's two reasons in both cases, both the throne room of heaven and the cross of Jesus Christ. First of all, the first reason is that when you think about the throne room of heaven and the one seated on the throne, words cannot describe him. Words cannot reveal to our mind's eye what the glory of God looks like. And if you were able to look upon the cross, yes, Jesus' suffering was horrific, but that wasn't the worst of his suffering. How do you put into words what it's like to bear the wrath of God upon the sins of God's people for all eternity? What does that look like? John couldn't put that in words. Secondly, the reason that John focuses when in visions of the throne room of heaven that he had, the reason he focuses on the activity of the creatures around the throne is that you learn an awful lot about the glory of the one on the throne by how those around him are responding to that glory. And likewise, at the cross, you want to understand the glory of the one hanging on the cross. Look at the activities that surrounded the cross while he died for our sins. It's one of the most shocking teachings in all of the word of God, that the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, is revealed much more profoundly, much more gloriously, so to speak, on the cross than it is even when he's seated on the throne in heaven. We see so much more about who he is. So let's look at these little vignettes, these three seemingly trivial things that are going on around the cross while Jesus is dying for us. First of all, why does John tell us about Pilate and the chief priests arguing about what's on the sign hanging over Jesus' head? Why does John tell us about that? I believe it's because John wants us to see that Jesus Christ is the true king who was humiliated beyond our comprehension. Jesus is the true king who was humiliated beyond our comprehension. In verse 19, it refers to an inscription that Pilate put on the cross. Now, that was normal. When the Romans had somebody crucified, they, they, they seized upon it as a teaching moment. So what they would do as this poor person is, is writhing in agony on the cross, what they would do is they'd take a placard and they would write on there what this criminal was charged with, what he was found guilty of, and then they'd put it up there and they would use this crucified person as a vivid uh, deterrent to others who might consider doing the same thing. And so Pilate, and remember, we've been look, working through these texts, remember 
Pilate hated the Jewish leadership. He despised them and he hated the fact and was very deeply resentful of the fact that they had used their political pressure in order to force Pilate to put someone on the cross that he knew was innocent. And so Pilate, typical to his personality, takes this opportunity of putting the sign on the cross to get in a dig at the Jews again. He'd been doing it all along. And so he writes on that sign, here is the king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Matter of fact, it says he put it in three different languages. He put it in the official Roman, you know, the official government, the, the language of Latin. And then he puts it in Aramaic so that all the Jews could read it because that was the common language of the Jews. And then he puts it in Greek so that all the Gentiles, anybody who might be walking by there, could read This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so, predictably, the chief priests complain and say, no, no, don't do that. This is totally counterproductive to what we're trying to do here. Put on that sign, make it say, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's actually a a traitor. He's a rebel. That's why he's being crucified. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Tough luck, guys. You've pushed me as far as you can push me. Remember last week we talked about dramatic irony? For those of you with us last week, dramatic, dramatic irony is when you as a reader in a story or a listener in a story, you know the big picture. You know what's really going on. You know the past, the future. So when characters in the story say something, they mean one thing by it, but you hear it and interpret it in an entirely different way. And John, as I said last week, uses that technique throughout his gospel. And here we see it again. Why does John record this? Because even though the chief priest rejected the title Jesus King of the Jews, and even though Pilate only uses it to get back at the Jews, John is saying, who will say amen? He is the King of the Jews. We who have the eyes of faith are to see that. That's dramatic irony. He is the true King of the Jews sent by God to reign over the kingdom of God. And so therefore, he's not only the king of the Jews, but he's the king of the Greeks, and he's the king of the Romans. Everybody needs to know, and everybody will know. You see, this is why, when you think about who Christ is, in contrast to how he's being treated here, you begin to get a concept of what historic theologians have always called the humiliation of Christ. That's a you know, I know we use that word normally, but that's actually a technical theological term. The humiliation of Christ is the Son of God voluntarily taking upon human flesh. It speaks of his incarnation, his suffering on this earth, his crucifixion. That's the humiliation of the Son of God. When we use the word humiliation, we tend to think of somebody being caught in their sin. Politicians get humiliated because they get caught taking a bribe or they get caught in an affair or something like that. So they're publicly humiliated. But what John wants us to see is that this is the true king of the universe who never committed a single sin. The only righteous one, the only holy one. And look at how he's being treated. This is humiliation. Matter of fact, I looked up the word when I was... was, Looking for the word, the definition of the word, the way we use it for humiliation, 
I actually saw a connection to what the antonym, to, to the, the verb to humiliate, when you say to humiliate, what's the antonym? What's the opposite of that word? You know what it is? To exalt. And that's what John wants us to see. This is the eternal king, the son of God. He should be being worshipped and exalted. And yet look at where he is and what's happening to him. Humiliation in the days of the Roman Empire had a name. The ultimate humiliation was crucifixion. Crucifixion was the most brutal and demeaning form of punishment that the Roman Empire could dish out. And believe me, they could hand out some pretty bad punishment. But even think about the location. It says that he was led, carrying his own cross, he was led to the place of the skull, a place called Golgotha in Aramaic. And by the way, that's where we get the word Calvary from. I didn't even know that till this week. I've always wondered, where, how did it get called Calvary when that word's not a biblical word? Calvary is the Latin word for skull. And so this was a place of shame. This is a place of degradation. This is a place to the Jews. Outside the city meant rejected by God and rejected by God's people to be a thoroughgoing, spiritually, physically an outcast. And that's where he's taken to be put on display before the world. But crucifixion, the actual act of crucifixion, the Romans considered it so shameful that they only used crucifixion for non-Romans and only the worst criminals and for slaves because slaves were considered less than human. Leon Morris, the commentator, says, the cross represented miserable humanity reduced to the last degree of impotence, suffering, and degradation. The body on the cross as it hung there was totally incapacitated, barely even to breathe. And the condemned were stripped naked and put on display before everyone, and I mean everyone, because when they talk about the place of the skull, we don't know exactly where that is, but the place of the skull, we do know because of Roman practice, it was in the most visible place next to the most traveled highway in and out of Jerusalem during the biggest feast of the year, during the feast of the Passover, when hundreds of thousands of people would be going by, seeing Christ humiliated to that extent. Verse 18 says he was crucified with two criminals which fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 12, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. You see, John's point in focusing his camera, so to speak, on this little squabble over what's on the sign is meant to drive the point home to us, to to, to cause us in our mind's eye, in in the eyes of faith, to see this huge, unbelievable, incomprehensible contrast between what Jesus Christ deserves as the true King and eternal Son of God and what he received at the hands of men. Someone once said, only the condemned in hell, who are there right now in hell, know what Jesus truly experienced on the cross. And to a degree, they're right. Because what they're pointing to there is that he experienced the forsakenness of God the Father. But that's not actually true because no one who's condemned in hell was perfect. 
No one was righteous that's in hell now. So no one knows the trip from perfect righteousness to experiencing the full wrath of God. And no one who has ever been seated on the throne in heaven and eternity past and all that glory has ever been cast under the wrath of God in hell. That's the degree of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. When I was a small child, and it's really honestly one of my earliest memories, I, had, I was sleeping and I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw a boulder that, as I remember it, was bigger than my house. And that boulder started to roll And in the dream, I saw it rolling towards this tiny, thin little toothpick. And in my dream, I watched that boulder crush that toothpick. It's a really weird dream. (laughs) But I woke up screaming. Screaming. And I remember walking out of my bedroom and sitting down on the front porch of my house and literally shaking. I was so disturbed by the dream. And ever since then, I had wondered, what, what, you know, what was that about? Why did that scare me so much? It was the contrast. The contrast between the bulk of that huge boulder and the fragility of that little toothpick. It's kind of the feeling you have here when you stand next to Niagara Falls, you know. The power next to my fragility is terrifying. But that's the kind of contrast I'm talking about when you think about what Jesus Christ deserved and what he received at the cross. Well, let's move on to these soldiers. They're playing this game. They're casting lots for clothes around the the cross. Why does John record this for us? Why does he think this is important for us to know? I think it's because, as you, the context in which he says it, what he's saying is this Jesus is the promised Messiah who is fulfilling the plan of God for all humanity. That's what he's saying. This is the promised Messiah. This is the one. You see, the soldiers are just killing time. I'm sure they did this many, many times as they put many, many criminals on crosses. What they would do is they, of course, the criminals don't have their clothes anymore. They're totally exposed. The clothes are there on the ground. So what they do is they divide them up among themselves for a game. And John mentions that, you know, in Jewish, typical male Jewish clothing, they would wear an inner robe. Sometimes translations call it an undergarment, but that's a bad translation because we think of underwear when we hear that word. It's actually an inner robe uh, that was more like a shirt under a jacket because there was an outer robe. So there's an inner robe and an outer robe. But the inner robe was much more valuable as a piece of clothing because it was all in one piece. It wasn't seamed together. And then there would be sandals and a belt and maybe a head covering And so as they divided up Jesus' clothes, they realized, well, this one article of clothing is worth a lot more than the rest of them, so how are we going to decide who gets it? So they cast lots. Okay, but what does that have to do with the cross? Well, John tells us, if you read carefully, he says in verse 24, this was to fulfill the scripture. And actually, I think what John's doing here is he's recognizing the connection, obviously, as he quotes it, between what's happening on the cross and what was prophesied a thousand years earlier by King David in Psalm 22. A thousand years earlier. I mean, these soldiers think they're just playing some fun game, 
And they're actually fulfilling a thousand-year-old prophecy that King David uttered. And you know what's fascinating? And I do encourage you to go home and make Psalm 22 part of your your, uh, preparation for celebrating Easter this year. Because you want graphic imagery about what Jesus experienced on the cross? David gives it to us in Psalm 22. Let me read to you the portion, give you the full context of what John quotes here. Beginning in verse 16 of Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, what John is saying is, God told us a thousand years ago what what was going to happen here. This horrific humiliation of the Son of God, the Messiah, was prophesied a thousand years ago, and it's all happening to the very last trivial little detail. And what that is meant to say to us is that the one hanging on the cross, as incapacitated as he was, is actually totally in control here. He had come to fulfill this mission, to die just like this. He's doing the will of the Father. Do you notice that John actually alludes to Psalm 22 again in verse 28. Because there, as we would assume, at the, near the end of his time of crucifixion, he's in a, in a state of severe dehydration. And so, and most commentators think he, he does this so that he can say his final words. He actually asks for a drink. He says, I thirst. And they bring him a sour wine that the, that the uh, soldiers have been drinking and give him a small drink. But John, again, points this out. We would think that would be a trivial fact, but John points it out because in Psalm 22, here's what it says in verses 14 and 15, describing the suffering and humiliation of Christ on the cross. It says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And so the one who said to the Samaritan woman at the well, I can give you living water so that you'll never thirst again. The one who stood up in the temple and said, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. He says, I thirst. As he faces that last moment of death. Which brings us to that last moment. He took the drink so that he could say these words, according to verse 30, it is finished. In the original Greek, that word that is translated as finished means to finish a task, to accomplish a goal, to fulfill an obligation. That's why I'm sure many of you have heard that it was used in commercial settings for paying off a debt. But he finished the mission. He accomplished the goal. The father said, this is my will for you, my perfect son, is that you go to the cross and die this horrifically humiliating death, and Jesus, as he breathes his last, says, it is finished. He was in control. Matter of fact, Luke says that just before that, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's why John says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's not the normal way of talking about death in Hebrew terms or Roman terms or Greek terms. That's not how you talk about death. We don't give up our spirit, but Jesus voluntarily gave up his spirit because it was the ultimate act of his mission. 
Which brings me to that last little vignette where you have the four women at the foot of the cross. Why does John take the time to tell us about a transfer of Mary's, his mother's care, into the hands of a disciple? And of course, he calls the disciple the one whom Jesus loved, and we know that's John. So John takes care of Mary. Why does John feel this is important to record it for us? Well, it's to show us just a little picture of the fact that this one who just gave up his spirit, who just fulfilled the Father's mission, is the one, according to chapter 10, who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Four women at the foot of the cross. Three of them are named Mary. One of those Marys is Jesus' mother. And John is standing there. And you wonder, first of all, where are the other disciples? Well, they're hiding because their life is in danger. The women wouldn't be as much in danger. John's there, and I suspect that because he, he seemed to have some in with the chief priest because he was allowed to allow Peter into the chief priest's palace. So I don't, I don't, John might have had some special protection. But John is there. And so Jesus somehow indicates John, and he says to his mother Mary, Woman, behold your son. And he says to John, Behold your mother. You see, by this time, we, it's pretty clear that Joseph, Mary's husband, had died. Indeed, Jesus had half-brothers, sons that were born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born as a, from a virgin. But those brothers didn't believe at this point. And so Jesus entrusts the care of his mother, who was totally, as a widow, helpless at this time. He entrusts her care into the hands of his beloved disciple. And so John says, took her in his home. He provided for her and protected her for the rest of her life. Notice that Jesus calls her woman. That's not, we, if, if I speak to my wife that way, she slapped me. That's, I don't, we don't use that term in English. But in that era, it was not, it was not a rude term. It was an affectionate term to say woman. But he doesn't call her mother. Because it's important that she understand that she relates to him now as Lord and Savior, not as his mother. She relates as a disciple to her Lord, not as a mother to a son. And what you have here in this little vignette is this sweet, little, gentle picture of Jesus caring for one of his disciples, making sure that she'd be provided for and protected. He's being crushed by the wrath of God on the cross, and yet he still is providing for his sheep, the sheep for whom he's dying. In Psalm 68, it says that God is, it says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. Here is the good shepherd setting this lonely widow into a family, caring for her. In chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Because over in, in Isaiah chapter 40, we have a promise of the coming Messiah. And it speaks of this divine human Messiah coming. And here are the terms it uses. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You see, the true king voluntarily laid down his life to fulfill the Father's will for us. 
for those who are his sheep. That's why he did this. It was for you and me, if you believe in Christ. Places can become very important to us, and that's okay. The place where you were born, the place where you, the house maybe you grew up in, the restaurant where you had your first date with your spouse, the pew you were sitting in when you first understood the gospel and put your faith in Christ. These are special places. I've never been to Calvary, but I love Calvary because that's where the true king, the son of God, went to save me. My mother loved the Lord the whole time I was growing up. And she used to love the old traditional hymns, and I hated the old music. And, and I hated, actually, I'll be honest, I didn't understand them, so I didn't, I didn't like the hymns either, most of them. And she used to sing with great gusto the old rugged cross. And I'll be honest with you, it kind of weirded me out. Um, I don't know if you ever paid attention to the words, but here's how the chorus, parts of the chorus go. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. I'll cling to the old rugged cross. To the old rugged cross, I'll ever be true. To my uneducated, unenlightened ears, that sounded like some kind of weird obsession, some kind of weird idolatry. Some, it weirded me out. But then after I understood the gospel, after I really understood what happened at the cross, I listened more carefully to the rest of the lyrics. That old, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me for the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In that old rugged cross a wondrous beauty I see for t'was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. I have made it my life's goal to continue every day to boast in the cross, as Paul says. Because as 1 Corinthians 1 says, for the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that as Christ bore the wrath that our sins deserved. His focus was on doing your perfect will and for doing all of this for us who are his sheep. Lord, there may be somebody here this morning who doesn't understand what the cross is all about, who doesn't have the hope that the cross offers to a dying world. I pray that your spirit would open their eyes to see the glory of Christ. I pray that they would be disturbed by the contrast between what he deserves and what he received. I pray that they would find the new life, the forgiveness, the life, eternal life, that is offered at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.